You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning, North Kent Chapel. I've got a, thank you, there it was, right there. I've got a scary announcement for you. The Marshall family has a teen driver. So, no, in all seriousness, this last weekend, Joseph and I uh, went around the neighborhood in Mandy's car. <laughs> Read into that, whatever you like. And Joseph did a great job. He's, we're working around right turns and left turns, right? Some of you are in this situation right now where you have a parent who's sitting in the passenger seat with you. And you guys are doing a great job because you're doing your best not to roll your eyes going like, I know, I know. Because parents, we do this thing, right? We go, no, watch out for the right turn or take this turn a little bit wider. Or oh, wait, that's that stop sign. No, blinker, 100 feet, blinker, 100 feet, you know. We get this really obsessive thing because we care deeply for our children and we know it's dangerous out there. And Joseph did a great job. He's going like, yeah, Dad, I I got it. I know, I know. So we're working on this together because it is dangerous out there. And I am a slightly overbearing parent confession. So I share that just to share not just the fact that you probably resonate with a little bit of that, but because I think... That at this point in 1 John, I imagine that that's what John's readers might be feeling. Because John, remember, he's basically a parent for this church that he loves. Gathering in their small house churches around the city of Ephesus, reading sacred words from their beloved 90-year-old pastor, asking, what does it mean to really follow Jesus? Because it's dangerous out there. And so... If you've been following along the last eight weeks or so, if you think that John's starting to sound a little bit like a broken record, it's because he is, right? He said the same thing over and over again. So quick summary, if you love God, you'll love your neighbor. Also, if you love God, you'll love your neighbor. And last hot take, if you love God, you'll love your neighbor. He says the same thing over and over again. And I feel the need to warn you that in chapter 5 of 1 John, where we'll be this morning, he's not letting up. He doesn't change his tune hardly at all. Instead, he's about to open up a theological fire hose, full blast, and say, here's where we're going. So quick heads up on that. Up until now, John has been really measured. He's been very evenly paced in his writing. He warns them, but he also guides them. He's direct, but he's also gentle. And his prophet words are tempered by his pastor's heart. But in the first six verses of chapter 5, where we're going to start this morning, there's no beloved, there's no little children, no casual address, nothing intimate. John, now overflowing with love for this church, who's doing the best they can to push back against the darkness of the Roman Empire, writes with the contracted urgency of a fire hose as he answers one question. What does it mean to be changed by Jesus? Have you ever asked that question? Not what does it mean to go to church and behave, but what does it mean to be new? 
Not to be a moral person, to be a good person, but to be a new person. What does it mean? What does it look like when I'm changed by Jesus? And so this morning, this text, I'm going to let you know for you note takers, this text breaks up into two chunks. Verses 1 through 5, what a changed life looks like. And then verses 6 through 12, where a changed life starts. So what it looks like and then where it starts. So when you put them both together, John wants us to get something, and here it is. Jesus changes your everything when Jesus becomes your everything. So with that, let's dive right in. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Here he goes. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Do you hear the love God, love for neighbor in there? By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It's like a ton going on there. I told you it was going to be a lot right at once. In this section, I kind of feel like John is kind of like a toddler who opens up his toy box and he's like, look, this, this, I just want you to see it. Look, this, this, until his whole room is cluttered with stuff. And then he goes, all right, play. <laughs> he just takes all of this out and he wants to show it to us. So in an effort to bring some clarity to what John is saying here, let's look into this text really deeply. So another word of warning, we're going to get into the deep end right off the bat. There's some deep stuff we need to look at here, so track with me. I promise it'll be worth it. Three details that I want you to see in this text right up front. Three details. And then we'll talk about what those details mean. First detail, John imagines a group of people, and he uses a word to describe them. Did you catch it? Right there in verse 1, he says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That phrase, has been born, comes up a couple of times, twice in verse 1 and also again in verse 4. Now here's the detail. Has been born or have been born. Okay, that is a passive verb. And the grammar people, the English teachers in here are going, oh. everybody else goes, I know where we're going. <laughs> here's all you need to know about a passive verb. Passive verbs are things that happen to me. They're things that I don't control, things that happen to me, right? I got rescued. I was saved. Things, somebody else's action started something that I am the beneficiary of. The New Testament describes salvation like this all the time. Jesus even says, he says, no one can come unless the Father draws him. Paul to the Ephesians, says, even when we were dead in our sins, God made us alive. God made us alive in Christ. So that first little detail, being born of God, this doesn't start with you. You're not responsible for securing your own salvation. God moves first. Now, I draw a lot of comfort from that. This happens to you. Second detail. It's a passive verb. The second detail that we've got to see here is everyone who has been born. Not only in this, is this verb in the passive voice, but it's also in the perfect tense. Now, don't fall off the grammar nerd wagon yet. Stay with me. The perfect tense verb. 
This is something that happened to me in the past, but has ongoing results in my present. Track with me. I met Mandy. We fell in love. We got married. Those are all past events, but they definitely have ongoing results, right? Something that happened in my past, there's a starting point, but it has ongoing results. That's what a perfect verb sounds like. So let's put these first two details together, and then we're going to get to the third. A passive voiced, present tense verb, means something happened to me once upon a time, but it's still affecting me today. Do you see the theological implications for this? John wants us to understand that new birth, being saved, happened to you once upon a time. But... It has ongoing results for you today. It sort of begs the question then, well, what, John? What are these ongoing results? Detail number three. John switches verbs around in here a lot. And if you've got a hard copy of God's word or if you're able to take notes, I want you to underline these where he says, everyone who believes, verse one, and then the father loves, verse one, by this we know that we love the children, verse two, And then keep commandments in verse 3. Now, all of those verbs are present active verbs. Almost done with the grammar nerd stuff. Hang on. Those mean that those are the things that I watch. Those are the things that I pay attention to. Belief, love, and obedience, or keeping commandments. So let's come up out of the grammar nerd depths for just a few moments. What's the point of all of that? Those things are not what I do to become saved. They are evidence that I am already saved. Those are not things that I have to do or to perform to earn my childishness from God. They are already evidence that at some point I was made a child of God. I draw a lot of comfort from that. I don't know about you. Here's what this means. Let's just drill it right down. You're not responsible for starting your salvation. You're not responsible for securing your salvation, but you are absolutely responsible for stewarding your salvation. Believing in the Lord Jesus, loving God and others, and then keeping his commands or walking in obedience. So we ought to ask ourselves, am I cultivating right belief? Do I find myself eager to love others? And is my life characterized by obedience? That is what we watch for. Now, here's the thing. I love working on cars. I'm cheap and I'm stubborn. And so for me, working on cars is a little bit of fun. Um, I like getting under the hood. I feel like I'm accomplishing something. Like, it's a good distraction from, like, head and heart work just to kind of get your hands dirty and have fun working on cars. So, now there's a line that if you do the same kind of thing, you know you should not cross. I can change the oil. I can change the brakes. And I can piddle around with some other stuff. But finding that line between what I can do and what I should do, sometimes finding that line is a little tough for me. So here's the story. Um, about a couple of weeks ago, I'm out to the driveway in the morning, and there's like a little bit of puddle kind of under the front passenger side of my truck. And I'm like, ah. so I kind of look where it's coming from, and oh man, it's the power steering pump. <sighs> All right, not to worry, YouTube exists for a reason. 
You already know where this is going, don't you? See? So hop on YouTube, go to rockauto.com, and figure out the part arrives a couple of days later. It's an hour job, and I'm done. I'm like, man, I feel really good. No more drip. A couple of days go by. A little bit of a grinding noise, the power steering pump. Oh, it's an idler pulley. No problem. Hop on YouTube, rockauto.com. Part shows up a couple hours later. Our job, I put the part back in. I'm good to go. A few more days go by. I'm driving down 7th Street, and I hear a noise that's a little bit more concerning. Put it that way. It's a little bit of a grinding noise. All of a sudden, my blower shuts off. I got six dashboard lights to check on, and there's the faint wisp of burning rubber. And I'm going, oh, no, what happened? So I pull off, and I check on it, and it's the AC clutch, which is sitting at the front there, and they're a Bearcat to replace. And I'm going, what did I just do? I just roasted the whole thing. So my car right now, or my truck, is actually sitting at the mechanics, and I'm preparing myself for a larger bill than I'm probably excited to get. Now, here's the point. Some of you know something about all of this. If you're a car guy or a car girl, you know that all of those pulleys underneath the hood are all connected by one big giant serpentine belt. They're all related. And so if this part goes bad over here, it's only a matter of time before this part goes bad. And if this part starts to wear out, it's only a matter of time before this part wears out. And the more pulleys you've got under there, the more potential for catastrophe you have. What's the point? Maybe I should be a little bit more humble with cars. But beyond that, I think there's a spiritual point we need to pay attention to. When it comes to your walk with Jesus, belief without love becomes irrelevant. Love without obedience just becomes thin and empty. It doesn't mean anything. And obedience just on its own without love for Christ just becomes legalistic and performative. But when you're really vigilant in your life, watching what's going on under the hood, belief in Jesus drives love for Jesus. Love for Jesus drives obedience to Jesus, all working together, giving evidence for what God is doing in me. So what? Here's what. I think most of us, and maybe I'm being really specific with our church, um, but I know a lot of you, and so I'm just going to venture out here. I think most of us get right belief. Okay, you hear gospel truth from this stage, like you're in your community groups, like you know right belief, most of you. I think there's a lot of us too that when it comes to obedience, like you know what God wants you to do. You know how to behave, right? <laughs> we know what right and wrong are for the most part. We're still learning, but we're trying our best. And so what I'm going to do is I want to take a look at this whole scenario here under the hood. John gives us something that we need to zero in on, and I want to join him here. I don't think these pulleys are our problem. I wonder about the one in the middle. Love for God and love for others. That's the hard one, isn't it? It's so hard. I'm not talking about tolerance of others. I'm not talking about coexistence with others. I'm talking about actual, real, selfless, genuine, agape kind of love. It's hard. Anybody else feel that? Like, it is just hard to love people in 21st century America. Why is it so hard? Has it always been this way? Yeah, probably. We just didn't know it. I don't think it's going to let up either. I think it's going to be hard. It's going to get costly. I think it's going to be inconvenient. I think it's going to be uncomfortable. And I don't think many of us are ready. <laughs> Sometimes I don't feel like I am. So let me explain what I mean. 
I'll give you a helpful way of thinking about this in case you can't feel where I'm going already. The language of our world is becoming very quickly either or language. Okay? Either you're this political party or you're this political party. There's no middle. Either you believe this about vaccines and masks or you believe this about vaccines and masks. Either these lives matter or these lives matter. And I see many Christians who have bought into that dichotomous way of thinking. But here's what troubles me. is When I look at the New Testament and I read about Jesus, Jesus was always trying to, people try to pin him into these either-or scenarios all the time. Is it this or this, Jesus? Which is it? And whenever that happens, especially when it comes to human dignity, Jesus always chose the immediately frustrating, ultimately costlier route of not either or, and. This and that. These people and these people. He wouldn't be boxed into whatever category they created for him. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus sees individuals, not issues. He sees people, not policies. That's a big deal. And so let's push this frustrating but compelling picture of Jesus into 2021. God's word teaches that pro-life means advocating for the rights of the unborn and treating immigrants with dignity. God's word teaches that it is possibly to be it is possible to be theologically conservative and socially compassionate. God's word teaches the importance of personal responsibility and pursuing justice for the marginalized. Why? Because loving others is a biblical concept, not a political one. Don't buy the lie that you have to be either or. You don't. Really, truly, you don't. Free yourself from that. I'm deeply concerned that many in the church have let the world inform us how to think. And we will never win the lost by taking on the language and posture of the world. We will only win the lost by taking on the language and posture of Christ. And I know what some of you are saying, because we have coffee together, and you're going naive, like idealistic, too simplistic, not practical. And so, I mean, just to be honest, to be clear, um, I don't have a five-point plan for how to love your neighbor. Either or is way clearer. If clarity is what you want in your walk with Jesus, legalism's great. <laughs> it's just not very satisfying. <laughs> I don't have a five-point plan for how to love your neighbor. There's no way that I can wrap my arms around 600 or so people here at the North Canton Chapel and go, hey, here's some bullet points of application. Go and do this, right? Love is always a harder question. It's way too personal. It's way too intimate. It's way too more, like it's, it's, it's got to be you. You've got to figure that part out. I don't even know how to get my fingers on what I'm describing. I just know that there has to be a better way than what our world is giving us. And better ways always start with Jesus. And better ways are usually very messy. <laughs> so, I will give you this, though. Loving others always means asking tough questions. You ever notice that? Questions like, God, where have I broken down bridges that you may want to restore? That's a very tough question. God, are there apologies I need to make? Are there offenses I need to mend? 
Are there conversations I need to have? Cups of coffee I need to buy? Where have I bought into either or when you're calling me to and? Because in John's vision of what a changed life looks like, it's belief and love and obedience all working together. And if one slips, it ain't going to go good. Now, all of that is what a changed life looks like. And now John's about to shift gears on us. He's about to throw the car in reverse and back up and go, wait, 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 wait. I need to make sure that you see something. So having shown us what a changed life looks like, John now shows us where a changed life starts. Because here's the question. And it's a question that I'm, I'm sure John's readers are asking. And it may be the question that you're asking this morning. You hear all of that, you know, belief and love and obedience all working together. And you're like, yeah, I get it. I'm trying. Where do I start? <laughs> Has anybody ever done that? Like, who is, this, who, is, who is this perfect? Who do I look to? Is there a model anywhere? Where does this power come from to actually accomplish this kind of a life? And with that, John answers in verse 6. And here's where this is going to get even crazier, all right? If you thought the first was insane. Just listen to what John does now. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and the blood. We'll get to what those mean in a minute. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. And there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. What is he talking about? We'll get to it. If we receive the testimony of men, means if you're going to live your life according to men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Whomever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Ooh, don't do that. Because he has not believed, or because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Now, there's a lot of like mental gymnastics there. He's bouncing around. Here's his conclusion, verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Okay, good interpretive principle for you. Whenever you are reading your Bible and you see something that's repeated, that's a little red flag. That's important. Did you catch how often John uses the word son in here? That's a very big deal. Because John wants us to see something, that this business of trying to keep your spiritual life in order, centering your life when the world's gone crazy, is wrapped up in one person, one idea, and he's going to develop that. So in order to get at what John's saying here, we need to ask two questions. First, what is he even talking about? And then, secondly, why is he talking about it? First, what is he talking about? talks about water and blood and the spirit, and you're like, I'm lost already, John. I have no idea what you're talking about. This sounds gross and weird. Can't you just tell me to go love Jesus and I'll go home, right? Another interpretive principle for those of you that are new to studying God's word for yourself. When you come across unclear passages like this one, let the clear passages help you interpret the unclear ones. Let the things you know shed light on the things that you don't know yet. 
And what we've already talked about is that Jesus is the center point for your spiritual life. John is writing to a group of believers in Ephesus. Okay, We know that. They're under the growing threat of Roman persecution. We know that. And he's writing to impart to them a sense of spiritual security, as if to say, look, I want you to know. I want you to know that you belong to God. Doesn't that sound like such a good grandfather? Like, I just want you to know. I want you to know everything's going to be okay. I want you to know you're going to get through it, and I want you to know why. If 1 John was going to be a New York Times bestseller, it might be titled, How to Center Your Life When the World Goes Crazy. And he wants them to get it. He wants to bring them certainty. He puts all of that on one idea. So let's dig in. Take a look at it again in verse 6. Let's throw this one back up on the screen just so you can see it. Verse 6. We hit this speed. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and the blood. And the spirit is the... I'm lost. (laughs) right, this is this giant speed bump. And I know what happens when you read it. You're just like, I'm just going to keep reading because i got to get to what he's actually saying. I don't want to slow down long enough to admit that I can't get it. So for what it's worth, this week, um, as I was studying and like prepping for this one, this is my first time teaching this passage. And so I'm pretty sure like Micah and Dave and Lori or whoever was walking by my office this week saw something like this on my face. I'm going, this is such a hard one. What is he getting at? So water and blood. Interpretations vary. Commentators say a lot of things. Some commentators say that this refers to Jesus' literal, actual birth. Kind of gross. Other commentators say that this refers to the Christian practices of baptism and communion. Water and then wine that symbolizes blood. Maybe. Kind Kind of a stretch to me. Other commentators say that this has to do with Jesus' death on the cross, right? Because if those of you who remember, in John, John the Gospel, he talks about it when a soldier stuck a spear in Jesus' side, water and blood comes out. It's like, eh, that's kind of artsy, and I kind of like that one. But I don't think that's what he's talking about. Because let's remember, John is trying to offer help to say, what is the foundation of true spiritual life? The majority view, and the one that I think is most accurate, is that John is referring to the beginning and the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. The terminal points of Jesus' earthly ministry. Here's what that would mean then. Track with me. He who came by water, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, and the Father looked at him and said, This is my son, listen to him. So there's power and authority there. And then a little over three years later, water back there, you have blood here. Jesus' earthly ministry concluded with his death on the cross, and he said, it is finished. And so if you have power here, you have purpose here. So track with me. If that's true, what John is saying to this group of Ephesians is, look, everything you need to know is bound up in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. You look at him. So if that's what he's saying, why is he saying it? Beneath all the awkward imagery, all this weird theological complexity, what he's saying is look at him. Look at that carpenter's son who grew up, lived a sinless life, died a perfect death, and rose again on the third day. That is the source of your spiritual truth. 
Don't ever become too far tethered from the person and work of Jesus. And so if you had to wrap your arms around the whole kit and caboodle, Jesus changes your everything when Jesus becomes your everything. Now, here's why this is so striking to me. Think about who's writing this. John. John is the last member of the original 12. The only one still alive. John sat with Jesus and walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus. If there's anyone who could have built himself a personal platform, if there's anybody who could have opened up a booth and start selling books of his biography, if there's anybody who could have said, look at me, look at me, I've got it, look at me. If there's anybody who could have done that, it's John. He survived, a martyr, he survived an exile in, in Patmos for 15 years. And then he comes back to pastor this church. He's like a spiritual hero for these people. And then right at the time when the spotlight starts to shine on him, he grabs it and he says, no, Jesus, just look at him. Just look at Jesus. Don't look at anything else. And here's why that's important for us 2,000 years later. Please make sure you get this. John knows something that's very easy for us to forget. The most compelling truth about Christianity is Christ. It isn't what church you go to. It isn't what pastor you listen to. Praise God. It isn't what community group you do life with. If your faith is built on, relies on, or is coddled by any of those other things, it will crumble. But if you've done the research and you go, I've read the Gospels, I love Jesus, I want, a, I want him. If you go, I've counted the cost, I understand what this means, I'm not, not sure all the details of what this means, but I want Jesus. If you are in love with Jesus, that's like a trump card for anything. That's what John wants us to see here. Look at him. Look to him. And that's why he says at the very end of it, what's verse 12? Let's throw verse 12 back up on the screen really quick. What's he say? Whoever has the Son has life. And if you don't, you don't. You want to be alive? <laughs> really alive? Do you have the Son? Quick story for me. So I grew up in church my whole life, really. Like, I remember sitting at the chapel in Akron, listening to Newt Larson, taking notes on my little, little memo pad as like a six-year-old. And like I remember, you know, my parents had what we would call a community group. They came over to our house for like bonfires and Bible study stuff, right? I, I remember this thing. This is just part of who I am. But by the time I got to high school, somewhere, I don't know where, uh, I just, I kind of, started to feel like I was masking a very cold heart with very good behavior. Outside, like, everything looked good. I never got in big trouble that anybody knew about. <laughs> having lunch with mom and dad today, so maybe there's some confession that needs to happen. But I never got in big trouble. But inside, it was just like this inner war of, like, who am I? God, what are you about? Like, I... I Something was missing, and I couldn't figure out what it was, right? Because I knew the truth. Like, I heard this since I was a kid. Like, grass is green, sky is blue, God loves you, right? This is basic stuff. But in my heart, there was something missing, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And then when I was 18, 
found myself reading the Gospels for the first time. Like, I'd read in them before. I, like, cherry-picked a verse here or there. But actually, the first time, sitting down, reading them, reading the Gospels, pressing in, asking God to show me who he is, to reveal this truth to me that for some reason I lost somewhere along the way. I missed it. I was in the second story of a student center at Moody Bible Institute. I'm sitting in this room on a couch. I just broke up with my high school girlfriend. Like, everything had changed. Like, you picked me up from Greentown and dropped me in the city of 8 million people. I'm like, ah, right? But I'm sitting there, and I'm reading the book of John. And what I found, or better, what found me, was I actually had no idea who Jesus was. Which is really hard to say when you grow up in church your whole life. You sit in church every Sunday and you listen to great preaching. I read the book of John, and in John 1, Jesus calls Peter and Andrew, and they immediately drop their nets. Think of what that meant for fishermen. Done. We're just going to follow this guy. It's amazing. John 2, this Jesus, defends his friend's dignity at a wedding, and then he defends his father's authority in the temple. John 3, he meets with this over-intellectual, spiritually curious Pharisee, or Sadducee, named Nicodemus. And then, in John 4, he meets with his polar opposite, this five-times-divorced lady who's a Gentile. And he treats both of them with dignity and care and love. And then John 6... Or John 5, sorry. John 5, he feeds a crowd of 5,000 people. And then he has the audacity to say, after feeding them, he says, I am the bread of life. What? 6, 7, and 8. He heals people. Exercises a man who was possessed by demons. And he meets with all these people who have no one to guide them, no one to protect them, no one to lead them. And then he says, I'm the good shepherd. And then I hit John 10.10. John 10.10 for me, this was like the car hit the wall and I flew through the windshield. John 10.10, Jesus says this, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And it was like, all I remember thinking was, if this is Jesus, I have never met him before. This person is incredibly compelling. This person doesn't want my behavior. This person wants my heart. This person just doesn't want my little isolated pieces of Brandon Marshall. He wants the whole thing. <laughs> I've never really known him before. A moment in my spiritual life because he said this little sepia-toned portrait that had hung on my bedroom wall for ever since I could remember was now reaching through the pages and going, I want you to live and I want you to follow me. Now here's the thing. As we wrap up today, it's always dangerous when a pastor says that, but you're watching the time, and so am I, I know. <laughs> when Jesus becomes your everything, isn't it funny how everything else moves to the periphery? When Jesus becomes your everything, isn't it funny how everything else moves to the periphery? Nothing else seems to matter as much, and that can frustrate people. Because when I say Christ alone... I mean Christ alone. Not just for salvation. Of course you mean that. But I mean for my life. And I hope you mean that too. Let me push this painfully in the front. You'll never hear me denounce the political left from this stage. And you will never hear me denounce the political right from this stage. Why? Because God loves people on the political left. And God loves people on the political right. 
And Jesus died for people on the political left. And Jesus died for people on the political right. We are the church, and we do not fight over the scraps that fall off of the world's table. One day, every knee will bow at the feet of the king that we love. And I say we do our best to introduce them as soon as we can. We've been entrusted with a very beautiful message. A message of hope. That dead things can be made alive. Old things can be made new. And whenever we wrap that language in the language of the world, we strip it of its potency. Consider the early church, this group in Ephesus. You've got Jews and Gentiles sitting next to each other. These people were centuries deep in ethnic animosity. These guys looked at these guys as terrorists. And these guys looked at these guys as nationalistic zealots. And here they are. How does that happen? Consider Jesus' own followers, these 12 guys, this intimate group that sat around together. you got Matthew over here. Works for the Roman government. He's the slimy stooge for the IRS. <laughs> and over here, you have Simon, who says anybody who works with Rome should head straight to hell. And Jesus goes, hey, come on. Communion together. How does that happen? You know how it happens. Christ and Christ alone. Period. End of story. Last week, I saw something here. I, like, I'd, if I hadn't had to get up and say something, I just would have cried. So Pastor James was here last week. A lot of you heard Pastor James speak. What I saw right before second service blew my mind. James was right down here. He was right at the count, countdown timer. was just about to expire. I saw James right up here. He's getting ready to come up. And I saw Larry. Larry's one of our elders who also leads worship uh, this morning. And I just kind of looked over, and I saw these guys locked in a big old bro hug. And I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. Now, beneath the just, that's cool, here's what you don't know. A couple of months ago, James marched with his brothers and sisters in Akron. Larry's a cop. How does that happen? That only happens when Jesus changes your everything, because he becomes your everything. All those categories just fall away. That's part of the vision that John wants to cast for us here, that the ultimate object of your faith is not a belief system or an idea. The ultimate object of saving faith isn't a position or a voting record. The ultimate object of your saving faith is a person who sees you as you are, who loves you as you are, even when you hate yourself, and he can lift you out of where you are into someplace infinitely better and infinitely more beautiful. And the only question you have to ask yourself right out of the text is, do I have the Son? Do you? Do you have the sun? So in the last 10 seconds, I want to walk you through how you would know. And then we're going to pray, and then we're going to sing. God's word teaches that everybody who was ever created was created to live in perfect harmony with God. We were created with this, like, no hole in our heart, no sourness from our own sin. We weren't created with that feeling. We can't even imagine what that would feel like, but that's what we were meant for. God's word also teaches that everybody has blown it. <laughs> Call that sin. And you feel it more than understand it sometimes. You just know something's not right with the world and something's not right with me. And you go, I don't know what it is. God's word says it's sin because you've broken God's law. God's word also teaches that Jesus came, and when he came, he would reconcile all things to himself, which includes my sin-sick soul. 
And on the cross, he accomplished for me what I could never do for myself because I'm not a perfect sacrifice, but he is. God's word lastly teaches that if I claim Christ and Christ alone for myself, I can have hell canceled and I have heaven guaranteed. I'm reconciled with man and I'm also reconciled with God. And that's why John wants you to say, do you have life? Do you have the son? And if that's not you, don't leave here today without doing business with God. All that other stuff is going to fade away, I promise you. Two things last forever, the word of God and people. When we say we make much of Jesus, this is why. Let me pray. Lord, we do praise you for your goodness. Praise you for your sovereignty. That you don't take sides, that you take over. You don't just coddle our broken hearts, you change our broken hearts. Only you could do this. Only you are that powerful. Only you are that good. God, we say thank you for the hope of the gospel. Let our church be founded on it and never deviate from it. Father, work. Use us in whatever way you can. This is a dark world. You've called us to be light bringers, and so give us the courage and the compassion to do it well. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.